Welcome back to A Closer Look, the Harvard Art Museum's podcast. Our first season is an exploration of museum careers and by extension, the museum world through a series of interviews with our own staff. Curator Mary Schneider Enriquez oversees the collections of modern and contemporary art at the Harvard Art Museums. Mary's exhibitions have included Mark Rothko's Harvard Murals, Doris Salcedo, The Materiality of Mourning, Fernando Bryce, The Book of Needs, Namjoon Paik, Screenplay, and most recently, Crossing Lines, Constructing Home, Displacement and Belonging in Contemporary Art, co-curated with Makita Best. In today's episode, I spoke with Mary, who has been at the museums for more than a decade, about her unexpected and inspiring career path. My name is Mary Schneider Enriquez, and I am the Houghton Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art at the Harvard Art Museums. How long have you worked at the Harvard Art Museums? I began in April of 2010, but in this position, actually first hired as associate curator and then promoted to full curator. But prior to 2010, I was hired as a consultant on Latin American art because the museum didn't have uh, someone who specialized in it. And I did my undergraduate and I was doing my PhD at Harvard in art history in Latin American art. So the combination I was, I advised, I did a couple of exhibitions for the museum. So I had a in I had that kind of role, but not a full-time role. When you were growing up, mm-hmm. what did you want to be? Did you always want to work in the art world? No, I well, let's say I always loved art and took a lot of classes, but I grew up in a very small farming town in Michigan. 7,000 people. I didn't have an art museum. I didn't have exposure to I mean, I remember the first art book I received as a child because I used to draw all the time. And my mother gave me a uh, book of uh, pictures of works of art in the Metropolitan Museum. I still, I still have the book. And that was like this window into, oh my God, this incredible world of art, but I'd never seen any of this. And so as a child, I did not always have this vision. I, I knew I always liked art, but I, I actually was more interested in the law only because I think that's what people talked about. I, there's no way that would have been the right field for me. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> so, no. But I, I have to say, when I was um, like 14, maybe 12, I met someone who was doing uh, graduate work in art history. And I actually was given a little tour of the fog when it was the fog. And in particular, looking at uh, 17th century Dutch paintings and works on paper. And I suddenly saw this whole world that I'd only seen in, in books, of course, but um, this world of art as being a, that artists like Rembrandt was creating in response to the people and the world he lived in. And I saw, so it therefore was not just, um, to me, they weren't just images that were beautiful. It was about really communicating about the way we live and what we see. That really changed my whole perspective on what I, the way I thought about art, actually. Did you take art classes in college? Were you an art student? In all through junior high and high school, I took a ton of art classes, both in the school and then private ones. The minute I started, I came to Harvard as an undergraduate. The minute I started, I was like, I am nowhere near good enough to be doing this. So I basically, and I know other people who said the same thing, I just quit completely taking art classes until my junior year when there was, you know, one of the great things about our museum, there was a professor who taught the history of prints. This woman taught this course on printmaking by having you study the collection, um, study the collection, and then learn how to create engravings and etchings and aquatints. 
And that was just the most extraordinary experience my junior year, because there used to be a, a whole printmaking studio on campus that was much more, not as, as high tech as things are now on campus. And so my senior year, I didn't, I was an art history major in college. I started out in history and that was just so dry for me. <laughs> so I, I switched art history in large part because I both loved the topic, but because the, the department was small enough that you had a lot of contact with professors and other students and you were able to study the works of art firsthand at the fog because that's what it, so um, it was just made the learning experience a really rich and layered one that and and you could take seminars and courses in addition to this printmaking class in which I actually was working with works of art directly and that changed everything you know um, but you know, I focused on I focused on ancient art as an undergraduate. I wrote a thesis in ancient Greek art, early seventh century BC, first um, sculpture in the Greek world that was um, monumental in size, meaning not the tiny statuettes. Um, and I got funding from Radcliffe to go to Greece and Crete of my senior year to go study them, and I didn't speak any Greek at all. So my parents were like. Really? You're going to go there by yourself? How long were you in Greece? I was only, it was during um, the holiday break in December of 1980. I graduated in 81 from college. And I went for two weeks. And I was in Athens, and then I went to Crete. And at that point, Crete was, it was developed because it's an ancient, incredible island that has always had amazing cities, but, but it really wasn't as like developed as a tourist place, certainly not in the wintertime. And so I landed in Heraklion. These sculptures I worked on, there, was, there were two in the Heraklion Museum, another one in the Louvre. There aren't very many in the world. These are these sculptures that um, people were still wondering about why they came to be, what led the Greeks to create them, why suddenly in a larger scale. So I was fascinated by it. And then I went to Hanya, which was way in another part of the island, on one of these rickety buses with all these women with their animals and their... <laughs> but it was snowing and there was icy tiny roads and I got off, the, the bus stopped at this place in a mountain and it was snowing and icy and I went in to get coffee because that's all you could... And I did, but I didn't speak any Greek really, so it was like this insane experience. It was so awesome. And got to Hanya and there were no tourists there. It was crazy. Wow. It was amazing. It was amazing because it was all for the research of these stone sculptures. It was so fascinating. So you came back to Harvard. You graduated with a degree in art history. Yep. And then what? And then I knew that I loved the field. My experience doing the thesis was the most important thing I did as an undergraduate. It was so interesting and it really expanded my mind and, and the things that I wanted to do or what I knew I could contribute to in the world. And um, so I finished and I thought, you know, I, I want to continue in the art history world, probably in the museum world rather than teaching because I want to work with objects and with students with objects would be ideal. But and so I, I got the advice of several people. And as, as I said, this was 1981. And they said, if you're going to work in the museum world, you need to learn how to fundraise because museums depend on that skill set as well as the knowledge of objects. And so I ended up getting a job actually in the development office, which is called Institutional Advancement now, at Harvard. 
they were in the middle of this $350 million campaign, which was a lot of money in those days, right? Now, now it's billions, you know, but, and I, um, for three years, I learned from one of the places that raises money best. <laughs> and I traveled all over the United States. I, did, I was in charge of like different communities of alumni in the Northwest and um, in Canada and had this amazing experience learning how to do development work. With the idea though, that wasn't what I wanted to do. It was more like, it was a good post-college experience that taught me a skill set that was going to be important. So at the end of three years, I applied to the PhD programs in art history and I got into Harvard. So I went, I started and, but I started in modern contemporary art because I decided I wasn't going to do ancient. And in my application, I said I wanted to do my PhD so I could work in a, a, a curatorial and a teaching position. I was very clear that I saw both worlds as, which at that point you didn't do. In fact, you still don't always talk about wanting to be in the museum world when you do a PhD. You're supposed to want to teach. You're supposed to want to be a professor and be a scholar. But I saw the field as something you could do both. Did you like grad school? No, I didn't like grad school at all, honestly. I mean, I like some of the people I met. I'm glad, I'm really glad I've experienced but it was, a, it was a particular time in the field in which there was, and I think we might be starting the same path, right? Not starting, but it's, it's also part of this. Um, a real questioning the discipline about, in art history about what matters most and the, ob the study of the object and connoisseurship was considered something that was just something that dilettantes did. I'm, I'm way overstating this, I'm being very frank. It wasn't really what mattered in art history and that in fact, the object as a social statement and using theory to think about the importance of an object in the context of the world you want to look at was more important than the object itself and studying what it looked like. And, and I was trained when I was in college, we looked at objects and learned from conservators and it was the history of how something looked, why it looked that way, what its purpose was in that context. So it was it was a pretty dramatic moment for change in the field. And also Harvard was one of the center points for some of the issues involved And in that you had these brilliant scholars like Tim Clark, who was known as a communist. And that was an important part of his thinking about art history. I learned so much from Tim Clark and I'm thrilled that I had the opportunity to be one of his students. But there was this, there were whole camps of people who believed certain ways. You either were a social art historian or you were much more interested in, in uh, literary theory as the primary means of looking at art and or you had the old word. So it was like, it, be, it was so divisive as a grad student that it felt that my love of the object became secondary to all the other approaches to learning that were really critical at the time. And I don't think that's a wrong thing, but it impacted my own <laughs> experience. So that ultimately I took a leave actually. And I, uh, which is why I'm not, a, I'm not a typical story, I think in any way, actually. <laughs> I did my two years of classwork. I was working on my master's thesis, the qualifying paper as it's called. And I had begun to focus not only in modern contemporary art, specifically on Latin America, because I had, was going back and forth to Latin America. My college boyfriend, now husband, um, was living in Mexico. He was raised in Mexico City. So I was going there periodically and had exposure to all this extraordinary art that nobody in the United States in the Northeast was talking about at all. And I saw this as a real opportunity. And I was also, it was an opportunity, but I was so passionate about learning about it because in 
in Mexico, the visual arts and culture in general is, is completely embedded in politics, in decisions on society. It's just people, it's, it's very much a part of existence. They're not just a, it's in a museum, people go see it, it's of what life is. So in 1987, I had finished all of that phase of my PhD work. We moved to Mexico. I was working on submitting my qualifying paper as a final version, and I was gonna start studying for generals. And I was there and I was curating independently with a Smithsonian Traveling Exhibition Service and doing other projects, but living in Mexico City and, um, I got approached by the New York Times, the, the chief, the bureau chief in Mexico City. He said, would you ever be interested in writing art criticism? And I went, well, yeah, because in my time in Mexico, I was spending an enormous amount of time with living artists in galleries and I was bilingual and there were very few Americans who could do bilingually write and speak. And so I would hang out with artists because it was like such an amazing, it is today still, it's a great world for living art and artists. and. And I said, sure, I'll try. I don't know, I've never done it. Oh, I loved it. So I stood, because he said to me, I know the people at Art News and Art in America are looking for someone to write down here. So I started writing for them. And Art News, I became their, their Mexico bureau person. I was writing regular reviews and big articles and I loved it because it was bringing the art to life in both places. And so I ultimately took a leave from the PhD program because I couldn't, felt like I couldn't do, I mean, I finished the qualifying paper, but I wasn't able to really focus from afar and do both. And I didn't, and quite honestly, I didn't know if I wasn't going to stay in, I, we thought we were going to stay in Mexico City. You don't need a PhD to do all the things I wanted to do there in Mexico, whether it's teach and curate and, and write. I was doing all that without it, and I didn't necessarily need to. So, so I took a leave. I ended up having deliberately wanted to have and was fortunate to be able to have two children <laughs> and I just continued writing more and more and that worked with my lifestyle too with family and it also allowed me to be constantly with the living art world with who the new artists were the new exhibitions and keep in that lively world and then in 1994 things began to change in Mexico and I say all this because it really impacted my life directly. There was a trade agreement created between Mexico and the United States for free trade. And Mexico became much more a part of the commerce and foreign relations in the United States in a big way. The result was ultimately certain communities in Mexico were feeling more and more alienated and more and more Americanized. And you began to have uprisings by 1995 in Southern well, in that whole time period, in Southern Mexico in particular, which divided the country. And there was an assassination of a presidential candidate, which had never happened in Mexico for like 60 years. And ultimately we had to leave the country. Um, my husband had been in government and, and he, he, he received death threats. And it's actually, to say this sounds so surreal and not read, it, it was an experience that was horrific. So we ended up leaving in 1996 and moved to Boston. And uh, he became a fellow at Harvard, which is not, he's not still there. And I um, came back and started, basically I, I was invited by Brandeis. First I was invited by Tufts to teach a course on uh, Latin American art of, art of the 20th century because there weren't very many people doing this. No one really knew. 
So I taught as a visiting professor at uh, Brandeis and then after, or sorry, at Tufts, and then I was invited by Brandeis and I taught for uh, three years and loved it. And I'd never done any teaching and I just, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And Brandeis I really love because I love the rows as well and, I, and, the, and the department, I mean, which you know it well. Um, the fact that studio art and history of art are literally this and a really just a terrific team of people there. Um, and so my professor at Harvard from years ago reached out and said, Mary, if you love teaching, you should come back and finish your PhD now. And I was like, well, I don't know. And anyway, long story short, I reapplied because you had to reapply after taking a leave to finish my PhD. Um, and this is now the late 90s. And at the same time, the fog, um, the director of the fog reached out to me because I had so much experience on Latin American art. And there was a major collector named Patricia Cisneros, who basically, if you go to MoMA right now, there's a huge floor of her collection of Latin American art there. Well, I knew Mrs. Cisneros and we, um, I was asked to co-curate an exhibition of her collection for the fog in the year 2000, 2001. That was the first exhibition in the Northeast of Latin American art of the 20th century that wasn't Mexican social realism. It was abstract painting and sculpture. And I did it the fog and we did a big catalog. And at this point I was about to go back to graduate school. I was, did this, I curated the show at the fog. I, we did this catalog and I was giving talks on it. And then it was, and the teaching. So it was like all these things came together. I was a, a mother of high school children with a job. And I, and I was brought into this job with the, under the condition that if I had to finish my PhD because at a teaching museum in a university, at least Harvard has this role, you have to have a PhD. So I couldn't be in the job without finishing. So I was working on my dissertation full-time and working on the job full-time and it was kind of over <laughs> it was overwhelming. And I wasn't 25 anymore. <laughs> wow, that's unbelievable. It was a great experience. It was painful, but great. I'm sure. <laughs> it was, it was, I remember I'd work, I'd come out for work and I would just work until like 10 o'clock at night because at that point I get tired. <laughs> and then all weekend and I gotta get this done, I gotta get this done. Wow. So they actually reached out to me. I was not expecting or looking for this position. Um, but they knew I knew the institution well, and I knew the way um, I knew the people and I knew the collection and I knew Harvard overall. And so it was, I was brought in at a moment that was, um, it made, I, I guess it made a lot of sense for them. And it was certainly an extraordinarily wonderful opportunity. For it's also really kind of an amazing story or lesson, I guess, in, you know, mm -hmm. maybe not actively looking for something that mm -hmm. just ends up being a perfect fit because of where you've unexpectedly been in life. That's exactly right. I think that was with, with students and postdocs I've worked with, one of my, my key messages is really just keep your eyes open because I, I know my, my life situation has had so many, I never would have expected I lived in Mexico, nor that I, none of this was anticipated. So when you asked me way back what I wanted to be when I grew up, there are so many things that followed a path I did not anticipate that actually 
steps along the way, I kept my eyes open and I kept the door open when someone would say, do you want to do something like that? Oh, really? I don't, okay, I'll try it. And in fact, it was a, an experience in which each time led to something else that was, I learned so much from. Um, and I, and I, I, this is a, a concern I have today about so many people who've come behind and are followed in terms of age, um, working so hard is that I think our society pushes you to think you have to do this and this to get to that. And I really, really believe that is not, it's not helpful. And I think it's unhealthy to, to make it so strict and exacting. I don't, I don't think life, I mean, just as this year has thrown so many challenges at all of us, if we're not able to adapt to change. We, we don't, and, and be open to something we didn't necessarily see before. I think in a way we're, we're not really living all life could be. It's an amazing lesson because just, especially in the art world and the museum world, I think so many people do feel that they have to follow this really narrow path. And if they, you know, mess up or if they step off, then that's it. And there's no hope for them to get the, you know, the yeah. kind of job that they want and have been working <laughs> for, for all of these years. And I mean, yeah. clearly stories like yours show that that's, that's just not, always the case and there's a lot of ways that you can get to this point yeah <laughs> certainly yeah. in your job learning to be flexible is mm. really important so <laughs> pretty important to learn along the way yeah I think that you know one of the things you'd said to me also that you wanted to touch upon that I've been thinking about is in modern and contemporary art and contemporary art in particular I think two things in terms of the path to, to become a curator I think there are, there are more possibilities to lead you to the point of being a curator today than there used to be in contemporary, that many of the, many of the great contemporary curators don't have PhDs or, and, and, and when I say great, I mean great meaning they're known. Some are better than others. Of course, it's the way it is in any field, but I don't think there's one way to get to, especially in contemporary art, because contemporary art is not one thing anymore. It's not just painting, sculpture, and um, works on paper, right? So in the same way, I think that modality of vision and, and experience is a really important aspect to get there. I want to ask you a few more questions before I let you go about what your job as a curator at the Harvard Art Museums actually looks like. Is there a favorite experience that you've had? Um, something that really stands out to you in particular? I absolutely loved, and it was incredibly intense, so it wasn't all happy, happy, but I absolutely loved creating, organizing, curating, and installing the Doris Salcedo show. It was extremely, you know, she's an artist I highly admire, of course, and she's very exacting, and she really put a lot of stress on our team at the museum, and our team did an amazing job of responding to the stress, but that experience of working on the show together um, was something that changed my life and I'll never forget. And, and it, was, it was a dream of mine that I was able to realize in our building for our audience. And I think her work means so much and it resonates in so many ways um, in our world today as it did then, right? Um, but that was just a, it was just incredible. I mean, the, the works themselves were complicated, trying to install the rose petal piece or these giant, where we, or the giant furniture pieces with cement that literally weighed 800 pounds. We had to take the doors off and stop the roads around. It was just like, oh my God, the challenges that 
that were imposed upon us were overwhelming and unforgettable, but the results for me were what I wanted and sharing it with the team in the museums and beyond was, it was all part of the, both the intellectual, emotional, aesthetic and academic experience that, that I had hoped for. And I, I, you know, it's just one of those things I'll always remember and be pleased was able to be a part of. I get asked all the time out in the world, how do you decide what contemporary art to collect or for the museum? There's so many great artists. And I think the nature of this job is one in which you're deciding what art to install, what art to teach with, what art to bring into the collection, either from someone giving it to you, loaning it to you, or, or if there are funds for acquiring it. Um, it's working with donors, it's working with students, it's working with scholars, right? So it's a number, a number of constituencies that's really important you're, you're carefully in touch with and thinking about. And, and our collection is encyclopedic. So when I think about in my position as modern and contemporary curator, what, what I want us to add to the collection, it's work that fits within or speaks to our historical context as well as addresses the issues of today and going forward. So on some levels, people say it must be so complicated. It is because there's so many great artists, but it's also very clear which works of art, one for physical reasons we can install or not install, but also that makes sense for what we can care for with the context that everything we bring in, we are gonna hold on to, or we will care for for hundreds of years. This is not a Kunsthal in and out, and, and nothing, no criticism of all that, but this is our context is, you know, students 200 years from now are going to wonder why we have, you know, uh, a work by, um, I don't know, Siqueiros that's called End of the World. And, and we can tell that story and we can tell that story in the context of going to the other galleries and looking at the end of the world at different centuries and paintings. And so it's both a challenge and it's an exciting opportunity to think about how each work of art that comes into the collection can be used in teaching in an intimate scale in the study center and also in the gallery and, and in, in writing the research for future scholars. You do a lot of collaborative work with curators yeah. in other departments. Yes, and with conservators. I mean, that's one of my, that, that collaboration across the museum is one of the richest um, kind of aspects of the work because we really do learn from each other and listen to each other in this way. Right, yeah, especially when one work of art touches so many different members of our staff and even different yeah. curatorial departments. And uh, also working with living artists too, because the other great aspect of this is bringing in by acquiring a new work of art and inviting the artist to come speak. And then they, they work with conservators to record how they want their work of art cared for. They work with curators, they work with students, and, and, and it's like this, that's another way in which we can all come together and learn, you know, through a single work of art and, and the person behind it. So it's a, anyway. You've touched on this a bit, but what qualities do you think make someone a successful or would make an interested, aspiring curator uh, successful in a job like yours? Or happy, maybe not successful, just <laughs> who would like your job? Wow. I think, I think first and foremost, being passionate about art. I mean, truly, 
I mean, I know a number of my colleagues will say, I get so excited. I just like my enthusiasm birth. I, I consider that I'm a gift in my life, but I also think <clears throat> we all have different ways of expressing our passion for art, but it's essential if you're going to be a curator that you really deeply care about the art. So that's, that's key. I think um, caring about it, especially in contemporary art, when you, the artist is alive, really caring about the maker and how they make it and why they make it and what they use to make it, the materiality, as you were talking about, I mean, really having a sense of why they chose to use burlap or that color pigment or that scale. I think that's really important to be, it should be an aspect of the work that you really deeply care about also. Um, and then the, the, the importance of how do you present it and show it and who is your audience and what are you trying to convey there. And related to that is both the care of the collection, but the care of the institution. And the care of the institution means working well with others, being able to encourage others to either loan or give art or give money um, and, and just building that relationship and dialogue with those both in the institution and outside of it and bringing them in is, it, it, it's all of a whole, you know, all those aspects together are what make this job something that get, gives you pleasure and makes you happy and can be very challenging, but it's, it's essential to taking on this role. And finally, I think being able to speak about art, write and speak about art. But I think I happen to like to speak more than write. And so for me, that's always been a priority, but I think the writing is absolutely essential too, whether it's wall text or catalogs or essays of all sorts, you know, in books. But um, to be able to express it to others, I guess that'd be the right word, I think is also essential. That was a great answer. Oh, this was so... Yeah. Fun for me. I hope it was <laughs> good. That was totally fun for me. I was like, wow, this could go on. I, I obviously I'm very passionate about all of this. So I'm, I'm, I'm touched that you wanted to know and I really enjoyed this. A Closer Look is edited by John Connolly, produced by me, Tara Metal, and co-hosted by Michael Riga. On behalf of all of us, thank you for listening. If you like the season so far, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform.